Hello, and welcome to the History of the Klondike Gold Rush, Episode 21, Hollywood and the Klondike. I'm Keith Halliday. And I'm Pascal Halliday. Scrooge McDuck, Harrison Ford, Gypsy Rose Lee, and Bugs Bunny. What do all these names have in common? They've all starred in films about the Klondike Gold Rush. Throughout this podcast, we've been trying to shine a light on the multitude of myths that still surround the Klondike Gold Rush. But today we're going to take a look at where many of these myths came from. Although the public turned to newspapers and authors such as Robert Service or Jack London for stories of prospectors and dance hall girls, few industries did more to forward the dream of the Klondike than the movies. From the 1910s to the present day, the Klondike Gold Rush has drawn audiences to theaters, enchanting them with stories of dance halls, bonanzas, and survival in the frozen north. Today on the podcast, we'll be looking at some of the most iconic depictions of the Klondike Gold Rush on film. This is not meant to be an exhaustive list, but more of a highlight reel, showing how different iconic films either created or played into public conceptions of the Klondike Gold Rush. Some of these misconceptions are harmless, and many in the Yukon enjoy poking fun at the mistakes these movies so often make, like showing Dawson City with pitch black nights in the middle of the midnight sun summer. Other myths from the movies, though, are more insidious and speak to harmful stereotypes of the time, such as the often negative portrayals of people of color. As for Indigenous people, they're often left out of the Hollywood stories completely or portrayed in ways that seem shockingly racist today. In the end, regardless of how accurately these films portrayed the Klondike Gold Rush, the reality is that they were successful in creating the myth of the Klondike, whether that's through Bugs Bunny fighting Yosemite Sam off his gold claim or Dorothy Lamore singing on a dance hall stage. We've talked about how the Klondike Gold Rush occurred at the right time to catch the explosion in journalism and media that occurred in the late 19th century. But we haven't connected this to the film industry. Back in 1898, just as thousands of people were getting caught up in gold fever, others were becoming increasingly interested in another risky business venture, moving pictures. Early filmmakers, trying to figure out how to make money off this new media form, quickly turned to the Klondike as a subject, capitalizing on the massive public interest in the gold rush. Thomas Edison was one of the earliest film pioneers to recognize the possibilities of the Klondike. In 1899, he sent the Klondike Exposition Company to Dawson to record stampeders on their way to the gold fields. This group of filmmakers created short films like Packers on the Trail and Rocking Gold in the Klondike, which were shown on Kinetoscope, an early film exhibition device. Some of these Edison films were even exhibited at the Exposition Universelle in Paris in 1900, where fairgoers were fascinated with real footage taken on the ground of the rush for gold. These early films were very short and simple, but revolutionary in the ways they presented the Yukon and the myth of the Klondike to audiences. Edison's competition at the American Mutoscope and Biograph Company didn't even bother going all the way to the Yukon to make their gold rush pictures, instead filming Can Can in the Klondike on their rooftop studio in New York City. This would begin a long tradition of filming Klondike movies anywhere but the Klondike, and the majority of the films made about the gold rush even today are not filmed in the Yukon. When it came to longer films, movie studios quickly turned to established authors whose works about the Klondike had already met with public acclaim and were therefore a good bet for a successful picture. For popular works about the Klondike, two authors stood out as fan favorites, two authors that continue to be podcast favorites today, Robert Service and Jack London. In the years after the gold rush, these authors continued to come out with works inspired by their experiences in the Klondike, and their works were only growing in popularity. As early as the 1910s, movie studios used the work of these two authors as the basis for movie plots. The first adaptation of a Robert Service poem came in 1915, when a company called Popular Plays and Players, Inc. came out with an adaptation of The Shooting of Dan McGrew. 
Although no copies of this film are known to exist, we do have a plot summary, which tells us that they added a very convoluted backstory to the poem, removing the mystery of the strange gunman in Service's original. This movie would be followed by several more film adaptations of Service's poems, most of which add many embellishments and plot twists. Service himself actually even acted in a Gold Rush Western, 1942's The Spoilers. Although this John Wayne Marlena Dietrich vehicle is actually set during the Gnome Gold Rush, I think Service's uncredited cameo as The Poet qualifies this as a Klondike movie. Although these Robert Service films were popular at the time, his stories haven't persisted in Hollywood as much as Jack London's. The first adaptation of a Jack London story came in 1907, when the Calum Company came out with a short film based on London's crime story, Just Meat. It wasn't for another seven years, though, until audiences got their first adaptation of a Jack London story set in the North. In 1914, Bosworth, Inc. sent a crew to Truckee, California, to film four seven-reel movies based on Jack London's stories. The magazine Motography reported that, an agent of the company has been north, scouring the states of Oregon and Washington, and finally Juneau, Alaska, for dogs and sledges. Forty of the best Malamutes and Husky dogs have been secured, and six sledges which, with a vast equipment of furs, parkas, mucklucks, and Eskimo trappings, met the main body of the company at Truckee on its arrival, and the work of producing the pictures began at once. These four films, all shown together, were a hit and proved that Jack London's works were a hot commodity for the movies. Later on, feature-length films would be made from London's novels, including 1935's Call of the Wild, starring Clark Gable and Loretta Young. Like Robert Service, London also made a cameo in one of his early movies, appearing as a sailor in a 1913 adaptation of Seawolf. Although Service and London were both hugely popular during the golden age of Klondike films, a period I would say lasts from around the 1910s to the 1940s, Hollywood adaptations of Service's work are few and far between nowadays. London's books on the other hand, continue to be adapted today, although the lackluster response to 2020's Call of the Wild starring Harrison Ford and a digitally rendered dog left some critics wondering if London's star has finally faded. When discussing famous Klondike movies, it's impossible to ignore Charlie Chaplin's The Gold Rush. According to some sources, Chaplin was inspired by newsreel footage of a long line of miners snaking up the Chilkoot Pass. Chaplin, who believed that tragedy and ridicule were never far apart, decided that the harsh conditions of the frozen North would be the perfect setting for a successful comedy. For those who haven't seen the film, it follows Chaplin as a character identified as the lone prospector. He struggles to survive a snowstorm, faces starvation, falls in love with a dancehall girl, and strikes it rich. The idea itself was a fairly simple one, but filming proved a huge undertaking. Like almost every film we're discussing today, the production did not film in Alaska or the Yukon. Instead, the movie was filmed in Truckee, California, on the same mountains where the first Jack London adaptations were filmed. For the Chilkoot scenes, Chaplin had 600 Californian extras brought in, and they painstakingly recreated shots of Stampeders climbing over the pass. The majority of the film, though, was shot on a soundstage in Hollywood. For some of the scenes, like the one where the prospector's cabin teeters over a frozen cliff, special effect technicians created a miniature mountain range out of wood, chicken wire, burlap, plaster, salt, and flour. Watching the film and knowing it was shot in California, we can only imagine the amount of money spent on artificial snow. While the setting may be fake, Chaplin manages to convey the fragility of life in the 19th century Yukon very realistically. For many viewers, the scene where Chaplin, stuck inside a cabin during a snowstorm, fantasizes that his cabin mate is a delicious roast chicken, encapsulated the dire conditions of many Klondike prospectors. Although the production of The Gold Rush was plagued with problems, the film was a hit, 
and continues to be a favorite today. It's been referenced in countless other films and TV shows and cemented many of our ideas about how the Klondike Gold Rush and its stampeders looked. When we look at how these early films helped create the myths of the Klondike Gold Rush, we have to look at how they represent the Klondike narrative, how they show the scenery, and which characters the filmmaker focuses on. For most Klondike Gold Rush films, the main character fits into a mold. It's usually a young white man, reckless but morally sound, whose determination is rewarded with a happy ending. Occasionally, the main character is a Northwest Mounted Police officer, such as in the Sergeant Preston series. But as a category, Klondike Gold Rush film is overwhelmingly male. Female characters, when they do appear, tend to be femme fatale or damsels in distress. To find a film with a female protagonist requires a little digging. The first film that comes to mind is the 1936 May West film, Klondike Annie. But that movie is actually set in Nome, Alaska, not in the Klondike at all. And while that film does encapsulate many of the tropes around women during the Klondike, such as the idea that traditional sexual mores were abandoned during the gold rush, the fact that it's set in a mission house in Nome excludes it from that kind of Klondike film. We've also got Queen of the Yukon, a melodrama adapted from several Jack London short stories, which seems promising, but the queen mentioned in that title is actually a riverboat, not a woman. Although there were many real Klondike women whose lives seemed made for the movies, studios often just borrowed the name of a real figure and made up a new plot. In 1943, Columbia Pictures released the film Klondike Kate with the subtitle, Miners, Gamblers, Thieves, Adventurers, She Ruled Them All, But One. The poster of this film says that the plot was, quote, suggested by the life of Kate Rockwell Matson, the original Klondike Kate. But the plot bears only the slightest resemblance to Kate Rockwell's real life, but the studio did allow her to pick the actress who would play her on film. When you look at the film poster, it's easy to assume that this movie is intended as a biopic, or at least a chapter from the life of Klondike Kate. But it actually focuses on an adventurous young man who is falsely accused of murder while in Alaska and must fight to clear his name. Even today, as interest has grown in the women who went to the Klondike, there are still very few Klondike Gold Rush movies that focus on women, and their stories remain as side plots to larger male-driven narratives. Although the golden age of the Klondike Gold Rush film has long passed, the myths of these movies persist, some of which actually erase huge parts of historical truth. While researching this episode, it was difficult to ignore the lack of female representation and the lack of Indigenous characters in these films. As we've discussed in previous episodes, there's a huge amount of Indigenous history and culture that has just been ignored in traditional tellings of the Gold Rush story, and this erasure is very apparent in the film industry. If First Nation characters do appear, they're sidekicks or antagonists, secondary always to the white male protagonist. Even when there are Indigenous characters in the film, they're rarely played by Indigenous actors. In the 1914 Jack London adaptations we mentioned earlier, the indigenous characters are all played by Japanese actors. In some more modern retellings of the Klondike story, there has been an effort to incorporate indigenous perspectives, but the majority of films continue to be from the perspective of white men. More recent adaptations have included characters like Skookum Jim or Chief Isaac of the Tronek Gwetchen, but the focus of the Klondike Gold Rush narrative has stayed mostly the same since the 1910s. Today, as we reevaluate our narratives of gold discovery, many of these Klondike Gold Rush films seem dated and trite. But even though they're not reliable as documentary narratives of the past, these films can be a great clue into how people of the time imagined the Klondike Gold Rush. For most of the audience, these films would be their only exposure to the Klondike. Few of these films were actually filmed in the Yukon, and most were more influenced by the tropes of the popular Western cowboy film rather than the reality of life in Dawson during the Gold Rush. 
Despite their inaccuracies, though, they informed the national imagination of the Klondike and the Yukon. In this way, these films are valuable not because they teach us about the Klondike, but because they show us how people imagined it. Although the glory of the Klondike Goldrush film has faded, there are still so many stories to be told, stories that focus on women or indigenous peoples that have been ignored in the past but absolutely deserve to be brought into the present. If you like this episode, please tell a friend and rate us on Apple Podcasts. If you really like the episode, please go to our website, which also has links and maps and information about the films mentioned in this episode, and make a donation. That's klondikegoldrush.org. Even a few bucks helps cover the cost of equipment and hosting. We didn't do this podcast to get rich, but, as an old miner might say, it would be nice to make enough to get our grub steak back. Thank you.